This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome to another episode of the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. It's Michael here, and today I've got an absolutely awesome guest, someone that I have uh, known of and followed for quite some time, uh, Harvard Business School Professor Amy Edmondson. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, now, recently you uh, released a, a new book called The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Why did you decide to write this book? That's a great question. And, you know, there's, there's, there's two answers, one substantive and, and the other timing. And so I'll say the substantive one first. And that is I have been doing research on psychological safety in the workplace for 20 years. And, and I, you know, it's so something I think about a lot. It's something that I believe is incredibly important at work because of the, the era in which we live, the knowledge era in which we live, there's so many great ideas that people might have that they don't express if they don't feel safe. Um, there's so many um, risks or other things that they might be aware of that they're not going to raise if they don't feel psychologically safe. And organizations are simply at great risk if people aren't safe, right? If they aren't willing to bring their full self and their ideas to work. So it seemed to me it was time to say this in an accessible way, to bring in stories of real workplaces where, where we can see both the benefits of having psychological safety and probably more starkly, the risks of not having it. But the other part is the timing. About two years ago, Google conducted a highly publicized internal study. And the study set out to find out what are the factors that explain why some teams perform better than others. You know, what are the key variables so that they could manage them better? And to make a long story short, because you know, Google, they have lots of data, they have great analytic prowess. They found, after a great deal of work, they found and came to the conclusion that psychological safety was the factor differentiating high-performing and low-performing teams uh, at Google. And so that brought you know, it was well written about in the New York Times, and that brought suddenly a lot of attention to this idea. And then, of course, for a few months afterwards, people started talking about Google's idea of psychological safety. So I thought maybe it was time to write a book. Yeah, it's perfect timing for it. And yes, Google definitely has massive information that they can pull from. And one of the things that I've noticed, especially in the workforce, and I've been working uh, since the 80s, so you know, my, my daughter refers to that as the olden days, and I, <laughs> I, 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 it's a good thing I love her because I don't think it's that long ago, but then I do the math no. and I can understand why people would think it is a long time ago. But I remember back then in working for large organizations and smaller ones, and even compared to now, it definitely seems that things are more siloed uh, people don't know as much about their coworkers or their bosses in their personal lives than they did, you know, back in the '80s and '90s. And it's curious. I'd love to hear your your take on this because I think part of it came about after the last economic recession. You know, where you know, a little over ten years ago, we had all of those people lose their jobs over the recession, and 
those that survived, uh, their workloads increased and they probably are afraid to talk about their workloads being too much because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. So that enters in, you know, the fear equation of they can't say anything because they're fearful that they won't have a job if they, if they bring up any type of uh, confrontational matter to their bosses. So I'd love to hear your take on that. I, I think you're absolutely right. It is a widely felt fear, right? So that people, um, people feel even more fearful than they did before. And especially if they have a heightened awareness that, you know, if I say something unpopular, you know, the boss doesn't like it, or the boss's boss doesn't like it, I might lose my job, right? And, and so then it is absolutely, you know, if that's your belief, it's completely rational to hold back, right? And we wouldn't, we don't want people, you know, I certainly don't want people to be acting in ways that go against their own self-interest, which is why it is so absolutely important that people, you know, in positions of authority and influence in organizations go out of their way to communicate something like the following. You know, we understand that there's risk out there. We understand that there's anxiety. And so we just want to make it clear that it's the people that we never hear from that we worry about, right? You know, if you're not coming forward with ideas, with questions, with concerns, it's hard for us to really believe your heart and soul are in it. It's hard for us to believe you're adding value to the shared enterprise. In other words, flip the natural sense-making on its head and make sure people understand that if you say something that's wrong, that's okay. Right? That's the way life is. You're not going to be right about everything. But if you're just holding back and are silent, you know, it's hard for us to really feel confident that you're adding value around here. It reminds me of uh, Alan Mulally, who was, you know, the head of Ford and basically saved Ford Motor Company. Um, I saw him speak at a leadership event in Toronto uh, last fall. And one of the things that jumped out me is when he took over the organization, you know, he wanted people to bring up the confrontational stuff. The, this is what you're seeing because from a leadership standpoint, our purview is different from those that are working you know, on the front lines or managerial levels or whatnot. And when we don't have that information coming in and it's siloed and people are afraid to bring anything up, that can be catastrophic to an organization because it creates a situation where you miss out on opportunities to either A, innovate someplace, or B, adjust uh, to what the market will bear. You bet, absolutely. In fact, I think a wise leader today knows that one of, if not the biggest risk he or she faces is the risk that they don't know what's really going on. And, and Mulali is a great example because he, he was very aware of that. And so he went out of his way to find out what was going on. So he let people know, I need to hear from you. And they, at first they didn't take him seriously. They thought, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We know what happens to people who bring bad news. You know, you know, when you speak truth to power, what happens, you get fired. And apparently in their very long history, that kind of thing had happened at Ford all the time. Um, and that's actually very um, clearly spelled out in Mulally's book about that great turnaround. But he, of course, was dead serious about hearing from people. And so when the first person kind of came forward in a senior staff meeting with, you know, with, with legitimately very bad news, um, what did he say? He said, thank you so much for that clear line of sight. And if you think about it, it's a brilliant line. 
because it's not saying happy talk like, oh, you know, it, you know, I'm so thrilled that this bad thing is happening. Um, what he's saying is the clear line of sight is incredibly valuable. And thank you. The next line is now what can we do to help? Right. We roll up our sleeves. So so you take something that is inherently a negative experience you know, in nearly any organization or society of bringing bad news uh, to power. And you convert it into a, a mildly good experience of first, the, the sort of the mini reward of thank you. And then second, the more substantive reward of let's roll up our sleeves and get to work on this. Yeah, it's a great example. And, um, you know, I was in the Detroit area uh, during that time. And while General Motors and Chrysler were being bailed out by the governments, uh, both U.S. and Canada, um, Ford thankfully was able to ride the ship without any real support from the government, uh, which says a lot uh, because they were in the same boat as everyone else uh, during that time. So on, on the opposite side of, of what Malali did, uh, Tell us about some stories of organizations that you're aware of that didn't follow those um, protocols and didn't uh, change the fear uh, mindset that the organization had. Sure, I can, I'll, I'll tell you two that jumped to mind immediately and they are Volkswagen and Wells Fargo. And I think the stories are pretty well known by many so I can just do them in shorthand, which is helpful. But I. I, I you know, at, 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 um, at Volkswagen, Volkswagen in many ways sort of epitomizes a leadership approach with Martin Winterkorn, who was CEO at the time, at the time of the diesel gate scandal, which was when it was discovered that engineers at Volkswagen had developed software to, to cheat, you know, to, to uh, help the cars pass the regulations tests in the U.S., even though the engine technology was in fact not as as, um, as green as it needed to be and and so you know the the um, the opposite leadership model here is that the wintercorn i think like mulaley had very high standards and very great ambitions for the company that part is the same what's completely different is wintercorn conveyed a sense of absolutely don't convey bad news i don't want to hear about it if you can't get this done, you're out of here, I'll find someone who can. It's that, it's that message versus, you know what? We live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. We have high standards, we have great ambitions. Some of the things we want to achieve might not in fact be technically feasible or might not be feasible in the market in which we operate. In which case, I want to hear about it. I want to hear the data, I want your reasoning, I want your evidence, let's get to the bottom of it. So I call this, high standards and open ears. The most dangerous combination you can have as the leader of a large organization is high standards and closed ears. And unfortunately, that's what was conveyed at Volkswagen. And I like to, you know, I like to imagine, um, just from a point of empathy, what it must have been like. You know, what's it like to be a working engineer at Volkswagen when you're given this stretch goal? You know, this diesel engine must pass standards that technologically it just can't pass. What must it be like that it feels safer and better to develop software to cheat the regulators than to simply tell your boss, or your boss's boss, we can't do it. I mean, that's got to be an incredibly painful place to be. 
And I think a wise leader in a good organization would never want their employees making that decision, never want them feeling that voice wasn't a legitimate option. Similarly, right, Wells Fargo, you know, the high standards is we want to be the absolute best, biggest, most successful uh, consumer bank out there. How will we do it? Oh, we'll do it through a strategy of cross-selling. So far, so good. But then we'll set standards of, you know, an average of eight financial services products per customer. Incredibly big number. You know, the industry average is between two and three. So, you know, this is a stretch goal for sure. And then, you know, put in place a culture and a set of performance systems that let people know under no uncertain terms that if they don't make it, you know, they'll be fired or they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll have, uh, they'll have uh, bonus implications and so on. And so, again, what must go through your mind when you find yourself in a position where it seems more possible, appropriate to cheat, to lie, to make up names, to create fictitious, you know, customer accounts than to simply report, you know what, this market is saturated. Yeah, it's, 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 I remember that time. I remember, well, even, you know, the Volkswagen situation is, you know, relatively recent, but I, I, I second your thoughts on that as, as an engineer, you know, you go in and you try new innovations and whatnot, and they say, no, we're just going to um, create some software to trick the system. And as an engineer, I would think that that would be very difficult. And mm -hmm. again, you know, depending on, and in, in the auto sector, again, it, it's a limited role. Uh, there's not that many automakers out there. So, and depending on where you live, you know, there may only be one manufacturing plant in that area. And the next one could be, you know, hundreds of miles away. Uh, and so you're, as a, an employee, you might feel stuck and you're like, okay, I just have to do this. And now, you know, of course, you know, with all those engineers that work there, they're a part of that. You know, they have to live with that situation, even though that decision may not be, you know, on their you know, hands or their fingerprints, but you know, their friends and family know, Hey, you worked at Volkswagen, you were in this department and you know, it, it definitely is something that I wouldn't want to have on my conscience for sure. And I'm sure, you know, those people didn't either. And unfortunately, you know, they do. It's such a good point because the implications of these acts, and if we just for simplicity, if we really focus in on the acts of not speaking up, you know, of holding back, whether it's about something that's gone wrong, you know, an idea one has, a concern one has, you know, those acts of not speaking up affect you, they affect the company. I mean, many people report a sense of, of pain and frustration from, you know, not feeling like they can really bring their full selves uh, to the workplace. Um, but they also affect, as you say, they affect your colleagues, they affect your neighbors, they affect, um, you know, when you're, when the company, company ends up tainted by headlines, scandalous headlines. Um, and you might have never been anywhere near the scandal, but you're affected by it also. Yeah, it, it has such a ripple effect and it really can impact um, generations depending on, on how severe it is. So let, let's, let's do this. Uh, so in a situation like those, you know, where, and it couldn't be any organization. Mm -hmm. And if you're a new leader that comes in and inherits that mess, 
Um, mm-hmm. what, are, what are some things that that new leader can do to help drive the fear out of the organization and create that environment where people can come to you as a leader and say, our engines cannot do that or the market is saturated or whatever the situation is. What are, what's some advice you have for, for new leaders that are going into a new environment that uh, may not be the cleanest of things that they have ever encountered? Oh, absolutely. It's such an important question. And, and, and I think it starts with, you know, what we're really trying to do is make the threshold, lower the threshold for voice. Right? It, it's, it's always going to be the case that there will be things that I feel are in, embarrassing or you know or, or I'm, I'm just not gonna say that around here i mean there will always be things like that and probably we should be grateful about that but what you're trying to do as a leader is lower the threshold um for voice so that people aren't you know they aren't operating with one hand tied behind their back and i think to do that you're fundamentally you have you you have two sort of way challenges and 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 one one is to make sure people really understand why their voice might be valued, right? Because it's, it doesn't make sense to just say, hey, we want to hear from you. Hey, it's safe around here. It's got to be more the, the rational case for voice. Like, and for me, the most important way to make the rational case for voice is to focus on the nature of the work we do. You know, we, we're making innovative automobiles. We're doing highly you know, challenging, risky, complex financial services um, offerings. We're taking care of patients. You know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the work is, let's take a look at it together. Make sure people understand and we're all on the same page and understanding that the work is complex, and risky, and uncertain. And anytime we're dealing with things that are complex, risky, and uncertain, voice is mission critical. So I'm just saying that's the, you know, that's the rational case for why your voice matters. But then that's not enough. Like, okay, I get it. You know, we live in this complex, ambiguous world. People's, people might see things that others miss, need to hear from you. But how do I make that abstract notion really concrete? And I think it's through inquiry. You know, it's through asking good questions. It's going around and saying, you know, hey, Michael, you know, what are you seeing out there? I know you're in on the front lines talking to customers a lot. What are they saying? What concerns do they have? What, you know, what needs do they have? Or, you know, some, you know, some good, I'm asking you good questions about the work and then I'm listening and I'm listening intently and I'm interested to hear what you have to say. And, and so that's kind of, that's another way of lowering the threshold for voices when, when I, when, when people in positions of authority and power ask questions, it's pretty hard not to answer. I mean, you must answer. Um, it feels awkward not to. And, and then the third thing I talk about uh, a lot in the book is, then how do you respond? And that's like the Mulally moment, right? When, when Ellen Mulally um, was in a position where he'd been asking people to say what was really going on, someone finally did. You know, did he look angry? Did he scowl? Did he yell? No, he actually put his two hands together and he applauded. And then he said, thank you so much for that clear line of sight. So um, those moments, I call those moments of truth, you know, those leadership moments of truth, whereby somebody does something that is difficult culturally and you appreciate it. You respond to it in a productive way so that it happens again. 
And that's exactly what happened at Ford because I know the story, you know, the next meeting, everybody brought, you know, bad news to the show and it, but it was, it, it, it the best way to put it, I think, is it gave people permission mm-hmm. to, to be bold and to yep. say what they feel was true. And it saved mm-hmm. that company just by him encouraging people, tell me what's going on. And being the type of leader that wouldn't be upset. And one of the things he said um, about, uh, there was uh, one of the senior leaders there. And, you know, they weren't in alignment with what he, you know, had in mind for the organization. And, you know, he basically said, hey, no hard feelings. We can still be friends. You just won't work here. And he was very polite, positive, and, you know, not confrontational. Just, we'll still be friends. You just won't work here. And that approach, um, you know, even to this day, you know, I think about that. I'm like, that is such a dynamic way of going about it. And it sets the tone for the environment saying, okay, if you want to work here, great. If you're not in alignment with the organization, then, then you're not in alignment and it'd be best for you to find something else. But a, we're still going to be friends. That's right. And it's, it's straightforward. It's not, oh, anything goes, you know. You can be any kind of person and have any kind of ideas and so on. No, it's, it's um, here's where we're going. Here's our strategy. We need, we need and want your help. Um, and it's, it's not personal in a way. It's, it's, um, I think it's a very clear message and very important. So you said permission. And I, I like to think of this as, um, you know, permission plus process. So the permission part is, you know, to keep conveying the message that, you are absolutely not only permitted, but even obligated, you know, to sh- say what you're seeing, to share what you know. I mean, the, the work relevant ideas, concerns, questions, we need them. We need them out. So that's permission. And then process, you know, just what can you do to make it easier? You know, if you have a process where the senior team goes around the room and each person is, you know, obligated to say what they're seeing what their concerns are, what the opportunities are, then that's a process. And it it just sort of, it takes away that extra dimension where I have to choose whether or not I'm going to say something. You know, in in those moments, I have to say something. And now it's just, you know, given that I have permission to say the truth, I might as well say the truth using this process. That's a great example, and I'm totally going to steal that. So I thank you for that. So, Amy, I've enjoyed our conversation today. I've got so many pages of notes, um, things to write down and put in the show notes, and just even personally speaking when I talk with with other leaders and ideas and, and concepts. So thank you for everything that uh, you do and that you're doing, and, and let our audience know where they can get in touch with you and, and follow the stuff that you're doing. You bet. So at, at, uh, go to hbs.edu, harvardbusinessschool.edu, and, and uh, just go to my faculty page, Amy Edmondson. And of course, I really want to encourage people to read the book because that's where all the stories are and all the sort of practical tips for how do you create a workplace climate where people can really contribute um, those, those ideas and opportunities that they have to offer. Awesome. And audience, I'll have all of that information in the show notes. So Amy, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you and all the awesome things that you're doing. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And thank you. And until next time, everybody be well. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. 
I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get us a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.